All right, uh, youth group, uh, we'll see you later. Uh, have a great time in the youth group. Um, we're in the middle of our series, Calling All Matthews. Uh, this is our third week of it, and uh, as you maybe are following, it's uh, talking about different parts from this uh, Matthew chapter 9 section, and, and today we're going to meet some uh, people who are hating on Jesus just a little bit, and so today's uh, title is Haters Are Going to Hate, and so don't worry about it. Uh, <clears throat> there's a couple of things that are happening. Uh, we, last week, were decorating those bags to give to uh, foster care kids, um, they are getting uh, uh, scotch guarded, and they'll be uh, available next week to fill, and then we're going to pray over them, and it's going to be really exciting. So uh, none of that this week, but uh, they're coming out. A couple other things that's going on in our church. Uh, if you're familiar with our Jericho Road maps, that's our uh, sort of pathway to like where you're going when you're at Jericho Road. Uh, get it? Road map, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, I know. So uh, Jericho Road Maps, uh, it's actually going to get buffer now. So if you took it on, like we did four one-hour sessions, then you got out on the easy version. So from, from uh, uh, moving forward, we're going to use the Jericho Roadmaps as really like uh, for uh, people to really find their place at the church. And so they're going to be four standalone classes. So they're going to get longer each one. And rather than be just all in one setting, there'll be one class and then you can wait and you can take a second one. So there'll be four different, same kind of thing, same stuff covered, but be able to go a little bit deeper and, and to be able to get a, a bunch of different kind of commitments. It'll be uh, one of our big processes for trying to help people to know where to go next when they're at church. And to try to figure out, like, look, I've been at church for a long time, maybe 10, 15 years. How do I know if I'm doing it right? Like, what does it mean to, like, have, like, how do I know if I'm, I'm a great Christian and I'm doing the things that God wants me to do? And this will really help us to be able to, to move into uh, the things that the church has available for us. So that's coming up. And another thing, uh, um, I want to I thank Peter Chang and the leadership board especially for for moving our hearts as a church towards having small groups um, being set for a longer term. We tried them out for the summer. We've done supper clubs in the past and different things, but small groups have kind of come and gone uh, here and there for our church. But um, we're going we're gonna to move into making small groups part of the DNA of Jericho Road so that uh, everyone who's growing and loving this church, they're involved in a small group. And uh, for right now, we're going to go three cycles of small groups a year. So six-week sessions. We're going to take a long break off during Christmas, a long break off during summer break. And, and so just uh, three times a year, we're going to start up these sessions, six weeks. They're going to be at home. They're going to be like we're doing. Um, <clears throat> they won't interfere with people's vacations and that kind of stuff. And uh, really, it's taking what we do best, hospitality and friendship, and, and uh, being even more intentional with it to build the church members, to build our spirituality and our spiritual lives and our spiritual experience. Really, uh, small groups is where church happens. Like uh, Sunday morning is really cool. We get to worship together. That's really important for our lives. But small, uh, small groups is where church happens, where we can find healing, where we can uh, open up our hearts to people, and where we can uh, find a, a community to draw near to. So uh, that's going to be something that's going to stay as our part of our church. And so it's going to be a little bit wild before it really becomes part of uh, our DNA, but that's something that uh, myself and the leadership board and, and uh, where we see that the church, uh, one of the areas that we could really grow in. So uh, that's going to be coming around. Um, we'll let you know when the stand-ups are uh, coming later, uh, late September for the, for the fall session. There'll be a fall, a winter, and a spring session for the small group. So I uh, just want to encourage you and let you know that that's coming. So we're, uh, we're in this uh, Calling All Matthew series. So Jesus had earlier come up to this tax collector guy, and he offers the tax collector a chance to join him uh, on the Jesus path. And this guy does. Uh, here's this guy, Matthew. He, after he joins Jesus, he throws him a party, and he invites all his equally messed up friends to come to that party, and uh, 
so that they could make, meet Jesus too. And we're going to find today that not only did his friends come to the party, but there were some uninvited guests that came to the party as well. And uh, they had a couple of things to say. Uh, they didn't have quite as open minds as the, uh, the, uh, the, fair, the tax collectors and the sinners who we saw last week. And so uh, we're going to see that Jesus is going to have to endure these guys who show up, and they're kind of haters on what he's doing. And so we're going to see that this week. The text we're working from is the entire verse of 11 in Matthew chapter 9. So we've done 9, 10, and 11. So here's what it reads. So what had happened is Matthew had just called, uh, Matthew had been called, he throws a party, Jesus at the party last week. And then when the Pharisees see this, the this that they're seeing is the party. They see these sinners sitting around, they see Jesus talking with them, like he's at the table dipping bread and the oil with them, he's, he's sharing figs with them. And when they see this, that kind of thing, they ask his disciples, they say, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so we're going to spend a minute just here on the Pharisees as we start out because they're, they're sort of our focal point right here this morning. The Pharisees, here's a couple of things about them. One, they seem to be lurkers, right? <laughs> they weren't invited to the party. <laughs> they're just kind of hanging around and lurking at the party. And this seems really weird for us because they weren't invited guests. But they came into the house and they're interacting with guests at this party. Now, in America, that would never happen, right? We go into our houses, we close our door, nobody can get in. Uh, we don't want the AC to get out. We don't want the flies to come in, right? And so it's not like random people come into your house at your party, right? And they're like, hey, like, what's going on? But this is actually a common practice in the Middle East even now. Uh, um, wealthy homes would have like a large sitting area back in Jesus' day and even currently. And, uh, and it would be open, not... Every, everything that we do is pretty closed off here in America, but, but it would be an, there would be an open area and there would be a kitchen area and those doors would be wide open and people would come and go kind of um, at random. And so in the center, you'd have a, a couple of tables and couches for your invited guests. And on the outside walls, they'd actually have just some bench seating or some stools so uninvited guests could kind of come and hang around. And it seems really weird. And, and as I was reading, I'm like, that's just so weird. And I always see the Pharisees keep showing up at these like, kind of parties like this. And I thought it was so weird. But uh, just last spring, we were in China uh, visiting my son's uh, foster family. And uh, so we're in this China, smaller kind of village. Now, it's not big city. It's like outside of the skirts of village. And, and they have this uh, outside area where they cook in, where the pump for the, the uh, water is, and the like, outside cook preparation, and then the kitchen is not even attached to the house. It's kind of separate. And uh, there's this big courtyard where kind of everybody hangs out in the family. And there are these large gates that they, always, they, they leave open. And so we're there with Andrew and, and, a, and our whole family, and we were like these invited guests because we're from America, and they hadn't seen him in you know, seven years. And so uh, we're sitting here inside the house. So in the house, there's doors that open to this courtyard, and then in the courtyard, there's these big like gates that open, and all these kind of are, they're all open, and we're sitting in the house, and as we're there, like random people are walking by down the street, and they're like, oh, and they stop in, what's going on? And they, they weren't invited, they're not us, they're not the foster family, they're not like the, the uncles or aunties from that, that family, they're just these other street people going by, and, and they look in, and the foster family don't bat an eye, they see them walk in, they sit in the courtyard, they don't offer them drink. They don't, they're just sitting there, and then we're carrying on having this food in the center part, but they're just like, oh, what's going on? And they hang out there for a while, and they smoke a cigarette, and then they go on, and then like more people cycle in. Like, people are just cycling in, and it's like so weird because we don't, 
We don't have that here. That, that's not how things ever work. I'd, I've never been in a place where, where random people just come in, especially you're like having an intimate dinner and like, it's like intense. It's like family and stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, what's going on? You know, <laughs> all right, see you later. I got to get to work. You know, it, is, it was really interesting. But, but I think this is exactly what's going on. This is how Roman houses uh, were set up and, and large Jewish houses were set up. They'd have a big courtyard area. And so when we find the Pharisees showing up at parties, it's not that they were invited. Uh, but being uninvited didn't make them overly creepy. So we don't want to think like, oh man, these guys are weirdos, like breaking in the house to try to find Jesus. It wasn't that. But, uh, so maybe a little lurky, but, but not culturally inappropriately so. Because I think the Pharisees do get a little bit of a, of a bad rap, and I, and I hate to defend Pharisees, but, but I, would, I would argue, and I think this is true, that the Pharisees, I believe, have good intentions. I know that when we read the New Testament and when we talk about the Pharisees, they're always the antagonist to Jesus. But I, but I think that the Pharisees have good intentions. They were known, that, so the one thing they were known for is they were known for being holy. And they didn't sin. And people are watching them to see it. And they didn't, they didn't ever sin. They didn't, they didn't do something they weren't supposed to. They didn't uh, break any laws. If, they, if it was drive 55, they drove 55 exactly. They set their like, cruise control on it. They came to full and complete stops at the stop sign in their car if they had cars. They followed all the rules. They, they never broke them. And, and so I think that they did this for a reason, because they wanted to try to stay holy. So, so let's say there was a rule, you can't touch the podium. Let's say that's a command from God. Well, they say, well, I care about God so much, I'm going to create another rule that you can't even go on the stage, because if you go on the stage, you might accidentally fall and touch the podium, right? And so they created these extra rules, these Pharisee rules, so no one's allowed to go on the stage. Why? Because you might touch the podium, but God commanded, just don't touch the podium. It's okay to be here, but you can't touch it, right? But they've created this extra layer of rules so that they can be holy, so that they won't accidentally mess up, so that they won't dishonor God in some sort of way. And so I think that they have good intentions in creating uh, a desire or having a desire to be holy. But I'll tell you, as a formal legalist, a legalist is someone who thinks that you have to follow all the rules that was me when I first became a Christian. And as a former legalist, I can tell you that it starts with good intentions. I absolutely, when Jesus saved me, I wanted to be his fully. And so I said, I got to get rid of all sin. I can't even listen to like secular music. So I destroyed my cassette tapes and my records at the time. I know, right? <laughs> and so I, now I, you just delete it off your phone. Or, but, but I destroyed my records and, I, my, and my tapes and, and I, I was so wanting to be near to God that I, that, I would, that I would try to be as holy as I can and then even create other, like, like n- music by itself isn't unholy, but just in case I want to get rid of it. And so my intention was good, but what ends up happening is it quickly spirals into judgmentalism, into elitism, and ultimately the rules take over. So that not only should I follow the rules, but when I look at you, you better be following the rules, and if you're not, then you're sinful because you're not setting these rules to be holy, to not break the other rule. And so as a legalist, I had a good intention to begin with, but ultimately rules took over. So why are the Pharisees upset when they come into this party? Like, the question maybe doesn't make sense for us. The question is, like, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And so you're like, well, what does it matter who he eats with? We sort of think that. 
So what's at the heart of the issue for the Pharisees? The heart of the issue is to eat and drink with others, it denotes an intimacy. It denotes familiarity. And so the Pharisees, by asking the question, they're, they're accusing, of, uh, accusing him of seeking society of sinful people and of sort of being complicit with the wicked. Now, they're not even saying like, the, the eating isn't the sinful, but because you're around sinners, then maybe you might actually sin like they sin. The inference which they would draw was that he, he then can't be righteous himself since he's delighting in the company of unrighteous people. He wasn't even, see, he's not trying his best to be holy because he's around there and he's too close to the fire. And so the Pharisees would say, like, because he's that close, he needs to get further away. Otherwise, he's sinful too because he's complicit in the sinfulness of them being near him. And so here we have the Pharisees looking down on Jesus. For us, we, we see the Pharisees in a negative light, and I think there's good reason to. But the people at this time didn't see them that way. The people at the time looked at the Pharisees as religious leaders. That, that, that was their pastors. That were the people who were doing it right. So were the Pharisees really wrong in trying to preserve righteousness? Like, is that, is that the bad part of them? They're just trying to be as holy as they can. They're trying to not sin. Why is that bad? And the answer is, that's not bad. The problem with the Pharisees is that they had become so enamored with the rules that they had lost sight of an actual relationship with God. Like the rules had become their idol. The rules have become their God. The rules have become the measure for righteousness or the measures for goodness or the measures of nearness or the measures of holiness. It's all become about the rules, not a relationship with the living God of the universe. So in their legalistic minds, they cannot fathom any motivation at all for someone who claimed to be holy like Jesus was, to claim to know God. They couldn't fathom a reason that he would eat with sinners. Like, it's just ridiculous to them. It doesn't even enter their mind. They are literally so internally closed off to the idea of redemption or reconciliation. The rules have won in their life. They can't even imagine. Like, why... They, in their minds, are literally saying, like, why would you do that? Why would you be with these? They can't understand that there's a possible motivation of love because they don't live that way. They live for the rules and the rules alone, and these people are breaking the rules, so you better not be with those people. The rules have won. So Jesus points out this problem with the Pharisees multiple times. Matthew actually records the following comments by Jesus. And I'm just going to highlight them here. Here's a couple of the things that Jesus says about the Pharisees and their problem. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees. You've become hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Like you clean up the outside of the cup and the dish, but on the inside you're full of greed and you're full of self-indulgence. And you're like this like whitewashed tomb, which looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of the bones of dead and everything that's unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you all appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. See, the Pharisees have allowed everything good inside of them to fall away, a relationship with God, a love for people, mercy, goodness, and grace, as long as they follow the rules. And Jesus says that's not so good. 
So their question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's actually not a request for information. They're not wondering, hey, why are you doing that? It's actually an accusation. It's an accusation of Jesus' poor choices of dining companions. They're saying like, hey, what are you doing with them? You shouldn't be with them. It's a desire to highlight their disapproval of the mainstream religious community to these choices of Jesus. The Pharisees are attempting to exert negative pressure to maintain the status quo of holiness distinctions. You see, they they are holy because they never break any rules, and they make sure to make these distinctions. These people are nots. We are the haves. They are the have-nots. We are the righteous. We follow the rules. They break the rules, so they're not part of this. And so they want to maintain this distinction. And it would be easy because using tax collectors and sinners, that's like low-hanging low fruit, right? Because nobody at the time, they, they don't like taxes. That's the Romans collecting taxes, and so people didn't like them naturally. And so for the, for the Pharisees to use them as this low-hanging fruit, um, the people wouldn't like them either. They wouldn't like tax collectors and sinners. We see the negative like, sort of implications in the, ne- uh, the New Living Translation translates the same verse, but look how it translates it. <clears throat> When the Pharisees saw this and they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? You can hear the disdain. They aren't aren't people. They're scum. So now that we understand the Pharisees, I'd like to explore three ideas uh, that spring from this set of verses. And the first idea is that we have to be incredibly careful not to be Pharisees. See, judgmentalism is real. Like the spiritual elitism, that, that's a true, real thing in the church. And, and I just want to admit that that happens in the church all the time. Happened to me. I, I lived it for a bit. And we want to be ultra careful to recognize it, but then to overcome it. When, when we've been at church like long enough, the people within the story that we're reading changes. Like the people that we resemble change. So when I first became a Christian, when I'm first a believer and I'm first hearing this, man, I resemble that sinner and the tax collector. That's who I resonate with. I'm like, oh, man, me too. I'm so messed up. I'm so bad. And then when I first come to church, that's how I really do feel all the time. And I resonate with them. But I imagine many of us who've been at church for a long time, like maybe we don't currently resonate with them that much, especially... We don't think of them as our spiritual contemporaries, right? And you're like, yeah, I was that way, but I'm not that way anymore. I've been growing spiritually. And so when I read this passage, my spiritual contemporary isn't the tax collector. Now, I wish it was the disciple, right? That's how I see myself. You've seen those memes, what I do, what my parents think I do like that. Like, I wish I was the disciples all full of learning and with Jesus and not making any mistakes ever, right? <clears throat> but, but what happens... Um, is that if I'm completely honest and completely transparent, I think that oftentimes I resemble the Pharisee more than the tax collector and the sinner and more than the disciple. And if I'm not careful, I literally will become the Pharisee. And that should frighten us. It frightens me. And it should at least give us pause to ask the question, am I more like the Pharisee than I am like the disciple or like the tax collector? Have we not purposefully but have we become spiritual elitists? Say no, but that's what elitists say, right? When I was a legalist, you said, you're a legalist. No, I love God. (laughs) Have we unintentionally 
uh, started to judge people, become judge and jury over people's lives? Have we decided that our rules like, and that our ways and our rightness, the way that we do church, maybe outweigh love? That it's like, oh, look at those people, how they're doing church. That's, that's probably not good. Like, do we have a heart for the hurting? Or do we have a heart for our own comfort? See, the Pharisees wanted to maintain the comfort level of them being the top dogs in holiness. And they weren't willing to leave that comfort zone to come to the tax collectors. Do the trappings of spirituality trump the redemptive process? So as long as they look super spiritual, and like they come to church and then they say they pray and they say they read their Bible, then, then that's like what's really important. Rather than knowing that there is a redemptive process in people and they could be honest and transparent about it. So have we become Pharisees? Like the Pharisees, they have no room for grace or mercy. They don't look at people that way. They look at them like this. Mm. They don't look at them like, oh, man. And have we become that? They can't fathom any possible reason that Jesus would break apparent religious holiness for these sinners. These people were not precious souls to them to be saved. Rather, they were wretches, some people to vilify. They were someone to look down on. The Pharisees were comfortable keeping their holy huddle and not opening up a pathway for other people to join. Are we Pharisees? Like, I wonder if we think as long as we're better than this person or this person or this person, then we're fine. I worry that we quickly judge other, uh, judge other people without knowing about their lives, without knowing their circumstances. Maybe we're unwilling to leave what's comfortable for us to meet the needs of other people, to meet the needs of people who are really messed up. Like, and I, don't, I can't leave my life and deal with them. It's just too much problems. But even less intensely, maybe we're just fine staying in our church comfort zone while people around us just remain without Jesus. I mean, I'm not damning them, but I come to church, I do my church thing, and then I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable just having, having that. That's okay. And so I think it doesn't always have to be intense, but I think it is prevalent. So we need to have a different response to those scenarios than the Pharisees have. The Pharisees would be fine with their own comfort. They're fine with looking down on people. They're fine with all this kind of other stuff. But we need to say something like, yes, I am willing to reach my, my Muslim, transgender, anti-God coworker. And I, I'm willing to share a meal with them, and to love them. I don't even have to preach at them. We could just have dinner together, and that's our first step together. Yes, I'm willing to travel to another country to help those who are lost. Yes, I'm willing to be friends with a Democrat or, or a Trump supporter even, or someone who's feeling the burn. Like, it's okay to cross over these kind of lines. I've got to say yes to those kind of things. No, I won't judge or reject someone because of their poor life choices. There are some people who have made really poor life choices. And we're not saying those life choices are great, but we are saying that we've got to love them and accept them and allow them to find Jesus. Are we willing to hand out grace or do we want to hand out punishment? Because we can't hand out both. You've got to have an open hand or a closed hand. It's one of the two. And so I think that Jesus would extend grace, extend love. Yes, I'm willing to be uncomfortable 
for the sake of someone else's soul. So that's idea number one, that we want to be careful not to become Pharisees. The second thing that I want to point out is how the Pharisees went about engaging this group of people. You'll notice that they don't ask Jesus, they ask the disciples. So they chose to talk to Jesus' disciples rather than Christ himself, even though their problem is with Christ, not the disciples. Because they were actually, I, I think they were afraid to engage with Jesus. Just earlier in, uh, in Matthew, just earlier in that chapter, uh, Jesus had indicated that he knew their thoughts. And then he did this miracle. And so they're like, man, I can't deal with him. So I'm going to go deal with these guys because that guy jacked me up just like an hour ago. And so they come up to the disciples. And, and they don't complain or question the one with whom they have issue. Rather, they go behind So I can't deal with him. That was too much last time we just got jacked up by him. So let's go deal with these guys and say, hey, oh, man, he's your teacher, right? Oh, my gosh, he's eating with the scum, you know? Like, do you guys know this? Like, they're at the party. They know this, right? Oh, my, mm, 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 mm. And so they're not attacking the Jesus person or talking to the Jesus person. They're talking to the disciples, talking on the side, talking out of the side of the mouth, talking in whispers, talking quietly hoping to stumble and ensnare those persons to cause division within what Jesus is doing, perhaps maybe to get some of those people to quit as disciples or at least turn against Jesus. In their questions, they're insinuating that Jesus couldn't be a good man if he would soil himself by being with such sinners. So they're, they're saying, hey, hey, what's your, what's your teacher doing over there? Why is he over here? You see, they're attempting to divide the group. They're attempting to cause these persons to say, yeah, why is Jesus doing that? And maybe we shouldn't be. Because these are Pharisees. These are men that I have grown up with my whole life looking at. It's not just some jerk that's coming up. This is, this is my pastor, my former pastor. Like when I used to go to that other church, these have been my, my mentors my whole life who we've looked up to. And yeah, they are asking about him. So yeah, maybe, it, maybe it's right. They were attempting to divide up the group. So this obvious ploy to separate and divide, it's, it's really effective. I mean, Satan loves this one. It's probably his most effective tool outside of probably uh, sexual sin. This is his favorite, especially for breaking up churches. Like this, oh, this one's good. It works every time. Every time this one works, and it is tried and true, so Satan uses it all the time. It is an effective tactic which is why there is so much mention in the New Testament about unity. There's so much mention in the New Testament about not gossiping about people. Not because like words don't hurt, but what hurts is the effect of that. It causes division. It causes a breakdown in relationships. Now, uh, the Bible tells us how to properly handle issues that we have with with brothers and sisters. It gives us a blueprint for navigating any type of disagreement that we have with, even in our own personal relationships, but importantly in our corporate relationships. The Bible says if, if I have a problem with someone, then I go to them in love, and I talk to them and they talk to me and we work it out. That's, that's what the Bible says. That if, you, if you ever have an issue with someone at this church, you guys, I want to give you full freedom to not come tell me. You can actually go talk to them. My permission, and I give you my permission, if you have a problem with me, to actually come talk to me, not somebody else, because otherwise it's always 
division, that will always cause heartache. It will always cause insecurity and stability. It is Satan's number one way to destroy churches. And I'm not going to ask for a raise of a hand, but has anyone ever heard of this in church, maybe? Like, if we were an amen church, we'd be like, amen, we've seen that happen, right? Because this is his favorite tactic. And so not going behind people's backs and talking, but rather go face-to-face with the person that we have concern with. Like, how simple is that? How clean? But it's a bit uncomfortable. Full honesty. If you're having a problem with someone, to go up to talk to them in love and to say, like, hey, I have this problem right now, and and I'm really feeling this and negative, and and to talk to them face-to-face, that's hard. That's uncomfortable. But that's right. See, the Pharisees are doing it the other way. They're trying to, trying to undercut, trying to go through the back door, trying to destroy the organization, not head on, but from the side. And so I think that we see that here. Idea number two is that they were asking the disciples. They weren't asking Jesus himself. And so for us as a church, we always want to just, whenever we have any issue, go ahead and talk to that person. You don't need my permission, you know. You don't need to tell your 10 other friends that you should if you should talk to them either. You could actually just go talk to them. And I want to give you permission to that. And, and I want to be free to share with you. If I, I give you my sort of pledge as much as this, if ever I have an issue with you, I'll come talk to you. I'm not going to talk to people about you. I'll just come talk to you. And, and I would love for that to be part of the culture of our church. If not, then we're going to find ourselves on very shaky ground. Okay, and so the, the third idea that we see from the, pa- the passage here is, is one that, um, be careful, we don't become Pharisees. Uh, make sure to talk to people directly rather than around the side. And then the last idea I hear, I, I see from this, is um, Jesus just, he just does what he wants to do. <laughs> like, he just does the right thing. And so I want to encourage you just to do you. See, God created you amazing and unique and wonderful, and just do you and love Jesus. Don't worry about all the haters. Don't worry about all what might happen or what people might say, or don't worry about what this person is doing with their spiritual life, and don't worry about what this person is doing with their spiritual life. Man, just do you. The Pharisees, like, uh, uh, they were attempting to pressure Jesus and his disciples into living their way. But Jesus chose the way of love instead. In life, we, we got to be careful not to succumb to haters or give people who are negative or critical of us more voice than they, or power than they deserve. But rather, I want to give you permission just to be you and not worry about all the things that are left and the right. Now, when we love someone, if they're in sin, the Bible tells us when we love them, we should approach them in love and talk to them about their sin. So I'm, I'm not saying the sinful parts, but I'm saying all the rest. All the rest, just do you and don't worry about it. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Like Jesus can't worry about what these guys are thinking. He can't worry about what they're saying. He's got way more important things on his mind. So people may attempt to discredit you or call, call into question your relationship with Jesus or how much Bible you know or like that you're, you're not doing what would be considered holy enough or you're not doing the things that they w- expect Christians to do. Like, oh my gosh, you wore sh- shorts on Sunday or you wore flip-flops at church or whatever it is or you forgot to wear your tie or you didn't take communion the right way. I didn't see you bow with one knee first and then cross it. Like, don't, don't worry about all those things. Just do you. Right? Do you and love Jesus. Uh, Charles Joe, one of our, our leadership board members, I, 
he shares a story about one of the things he loves about being a SWAT member. So he's, he's a SWAT member, and, and we always love to toot his horn as the first Korean-American SWAT member ever in the world. They had never existed before he became one, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, first one in L.A., right? So, which is true, like he is. And he's amazing and, and incredibly humble. And when he, you talk to him, one of, the, one of the things he likes about being a, a SWAT member and a, and a love Jesus Christian is that he gets to blow people's misconceptions about Christians. So when he tells them, like, you know, most people, they expect a meek and a mild Christian and someone who's just kneeling at the church all the time, you know, and here he is in combat gear and locked and loaded, hanging out of a helicopter, doing this kind of stuff. That's what, remember, what we imagine people do, what they really do, like, right? So here he is, like, doing all these things. And one of the things he always shares is he loves that that blows misconceptions for non-Christians, what they think about Christians. It blows their mind. They're like, what? How could you be a SWAT and a Christian? He's like, because I can. Because Jesus don't care if you're a SWAT and a Christian. I can just do me. I can just be who God created me to be and love people. And so God created you to worship him in your unique way. Like he created you to live for him in your own way. Things like reverence and worship and propriety and properness and honoring God, like that look, it looks different for every single one of us. And so I want to tell you, just do you. Love Jesus and love other people. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to, I just want to be free. And there's so much stuff that entangles us. I want to be free to be who I am. I want to be free to, if I ever have a problem with anyone, just to talk to them about it. And I want to be free from the rules, that it never becomes about the rules, that I don't become the Pharisee. God, you know my heart that I could... I could leak back that way, so I pray you'd protect me personally, protect our church, so that we would offer grace and love instead of condemnation and judgment. That we would offer goodness and light instead of punishment, finger-pointing, judgment. God, I'm going to leave all the judging to you. (laughs) You're the God of the universe. You get to judge it all. God, we want to just love. And we want to love the way that you made us to love. And we want to love in, in our businesses and in our work and in our houses. And we want to love whether we're SWAT members or secretaries. Father God, whether we're accountants, college students. We just want to love you. And be free to do that. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't listen to haters. You didn't get sidetracked by them. You weren't distracted from what you wanted to do because people were... misunderstanding what was going on, that you just did you. Would you encourage us and bless us as we follow you? Would you take a time right now, just between you and Jesus, right before we worship, we're going to finish in a worship song, but but just take a time with you and Jesus and, and just check your heart. One, how's your Pharisee level? <laughs> are you stuck in your comfort zone? Are you looking down on people? If, if you are, then, then go ahead and address that with God. And the other thing I want you to just maybe talk to God about is, is God, how can I just be me? Free me up, God, to just follow you fully. And just to do me and to love you and love people. Would you pray those things with me and then we'll worship together?